You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Imagine that you're a simple fisherman on the coast of East Africa, or India, or Arabia in the early 15th century, and you see on the horizon a ship, and then another, and then another. Dozens, even hundreds of ships appear. And these are not just small fishing boats or merchant ships. These are massive vessels, unlike anything you've ever seen or imagined. The largest of them is over 400 feet long. They have red silk sails and banners and flags of every color imaginable. And from these ships, drums and bells and gongs would have sounded out. If you had experienced this, you would have been witnessing one of the greatest armadas ever assembled. A fleet so massive, it would not be surpassed until the First World War, 500 years later. This was the legendary Chinese treasure fleet, which sailed the waters of the Indian Ocean for about 30 years in the early 15th century. In this episode of Explorers, we are going to look at the treasure fleet, as well as the man behind them, Zheng Ha. So, for this episode, we will be sailing into uncharted waters, because coming into this podcast, my knowledge of Zheng Ha and Chinese history was terribly limited. Thus, I was pretty apprehensive as I undertook researching and writing the script for this episode. I was really leaving my comfort zone of Western history for something very new, and that can be a little scary, as well as kind of exciting. So, with that in mind, know that putting together this podcast was a lot slower process than normal. You have to read more, go through more sources, reread things over and over, just to make sure you're getting facts and timelines and names correct. So, as we move into the episode, a couple of notes. First, I will provide a bit more background than normal at times, since my knowledge of Chinese history is pretty limited. When I script an episode, I try to make a narrative that is really clear for the listener. I never like having a story where the listener, or myself, sits there and says, wait, what happened, or I don't get it. So, to try and avoid confusion, I will err on providing too much information rather than not enough. I should mention that you might want to visit explorerspodcast.com, where you can see a map of China and the roots of the treasure fleet, just to help guide you through this podcast. Okay, second item. I'm excited to be able to add yet another language to my list of horrible pronunciations. Thankfully, some of the sources provide decent guidelines to pronouncing the many names and places involved in this podcast, but like with any language, nothing is perfect. Within Chinese itself, there are many variations of how to pronounce something, and I've found numerous contradictions. In the end, I will try and settle on one pronunciation and stick with it, but I imagine I'll still mangle more than my fair share of words and names. I also want to mention that some of the pronunciations do not always match with how things are spelled, at least in English. 
Example, the subject of our podcast is Zheng Ha, but the spelling of his name is Z-H-E-N-G-H-E. I normally would try and pronounce this as Zheng He or Cheng He or something like that, but those are wrong, and I'm going to try and stick with what the experts tell me. In this case, it's Zheng Ha. Just know that it might lead to a little bit of confusion. Anyhow, on to the story of Zheng Ha and the Chinese treasure fleet. The roots of our story really begin many, many years before Zheng Ha was ever born. For us, I'm going to take us back roughly a thousand years from present day. In China, this corresponds with the emergence of the Song Dynasty, which ruled China from 960 to 1297 CE. During this time, you saw incredible growth, with China's population doubling between the 10th and 11th centuries. Innovations increased food production, cities grew, science and math and engineering flourished. The introduction of gunpowder weapons into the military made the Chinese armies formidable. All of this coincided with the re-emergence of Confucianism in China. It is something that is critical to our story, so I want to take a minute to talk about it. Confucianism is a tradition and a religion and a philosophy that originated in China with the philosopher Confucius around 500 BCE. Confucianism saw a revival during the Tang Dynasty, which ruled much of China from 618 to 907. It was a response to Buddhism and Taoism. I should mention that Confucianism is not something I'm particularly well versed in. So when I talk about it, I'm really looking at it from a Wikipedia-like level. We want to understand the basics so that we understand how it relates to our narrative. Anyhow, at this time, Confucianism was more of an inward-looking philosophy. There was a focus on family and community and harmony and spiritual well-being. There was honor and respect to be had in running a productive farm or helping the community operate smoothly and fairly and efficiently. Family and community were paramount. In China, this sort of tamed outward-looking individuals and initiatives and kept the focus of the populace on the immediate world around them. This sort of inward focus led to a suspicion of outsiders and outside ways. Merchants and business people were often viewed with distrust. And this attitude extended from the simplest family to those in the highest rungs of government. So, for a long time, this limited Chinese external adventures. There was no need to conquer other nations or to set out and explore distant lands. That was for other people. It was in many ways an isolationist policy. All of this allowed the Arabs and Persians to dominate maritime trade in much of southern Asia, including the Spice Islands, India, Japan, and China. Thus, it was the Arab and Persian merchants, not the Chinese, who would control and profit from the trade to and from all of these lands. But like any empire, external and internal forces could not be kept at bay forever. The Song Dynasty would face a rebellion in the north in 1115, and the Song would be defeated in 1127, and that would lead to the establishment of the Jin Dynasty, which would rule over much of northern China. These two empires would engage in a series of wars that would last about a hundred years. However, the defeat in 1127 would have several major repercussions. First, there would be a new emperor in the south, Gao Zong. Also, the capital of the Song dynasty would be moved to Hoangzhou. Gao Song, the emperor, recognized two things. One, he needed money. And two, he needed to protect his new capital, which was on the coast and vulnerable to attack from the sea. This meant he needed ships. Ships to defend China and ships to stimulate trade, and thus bring in desperately needed revenues. The new emperor was aggressive in the modernization of the nation's maritime endeavors. He improved harbors, widened canals, and encouraged his people to study the ideas of other cultures and peoples, such as the Arabs. 
He even offered cash rewards to spur maritime innovation. It was in many ways a rejection of the internal focus promoted by Confucianism. The emperor understood that too many years of isolation had stagnated the empire, and it needed a good kick in the butt. The result of all this would lead to an explosion of maritime trade, as well as military might. By 1200, the Song would control the seas, displacing the Arabs and Persians as the primary traders in the region. Chinese goods would begin to flow throughout the Indian Ocean, and financial capital came into the country. The backbone of the Chinese fleet was the merchant junk, which was typically about 100 feet long and had a crew of 60 men. These junks were so well built that they could cover 300 miles in a day when the winds were favorable. These ships would sail to Ceylon, Arabia, India, and the Spice Islands, spreading Chinese influence and bringing revenue back to the motherland. So, things were looking pretty good. The Song capital of Hongzhou would flourish and grow to more than a million people by the end of the 13th century. When Marco Polo visited the city, he called it, quote, greater than any in the world, end quote. But things were about to change because a big scary was coming from the north, and it was not the Jin, it was the Mongols. The Mongol tribes had threatened China since, well, forever. But Genghis Khan would emerge around 1200, and his famed horde would attack the Jin in the north. For nearly 30 years, the Mongols would battle the Jin, eventually conquering them in 1234, effectively ending the Jin dynasty. Next on their list was the Song. It would take some time, but the Song would, little by little, eventually be overcome. By 1279, Kublai Khan, the grandson of the great Genghis Khan, had established a Mongol realm in China, the Yuan Dynasty. The Yuan Dynasty was marked by conquest and expansion and conflict, and it would last for nearly 100 years. But in time, the Mongol control over China would be undermined in various ways, including wars, overtaxation, natural disasters, overexpansion, and corruption. Plus, the discrimination of the native Han Chinese led to a growing discontent. By the mid-1300s, Famine and revolt would become the norm in China. At this time, a Buddhist monk named Zhu Yuanjiang would emerge as the era's greatest leader. Zhu Yuanjiang would defeat the Mongols, as well as other competing Chinese factions, and in 1368 he would establish the Ming Dynasty. Ming means enlightened or bright. This new era would lead to further distrust of outsiders, not a shocker after a century of Mongol rule. External influences, including trade, were discouraged. Travel outside of China was banned. It was a return to more of an isolationist attitude, with advisors Confucian in nature dominating the regime. The last of the Mongol forces retreated to an area called Yunnan, which is in the south of China, bordering modern-day Vietnam, Laos, and Myanmar. It is a mountainous region, surrounded by rainforest and traditionally a difficult area to conquer. Zhu Yuanjiang would send an army of 300,000 men into the province in 1381. The capital of the province, Kunming, would be captured a year later, ending the rebellion. 60,000 men were put to death by the Chinese. And this brings us to the main subject of our podcast, Zheng Ha. In 1381, according to legend, a Chinese general named Fu Yaodi came across a 10-year-old boy along the side of the road while in Yunnan. He asked the boy the whereabouts of the Mongol rebel leader. The boy replied, he jumped into a pond. The general liked the boldness of the boy's snarky response, and he took him prisoner. Within the next few years, the boy, whose name was Ma Ha, would be made into a eunuch and placed into the household of Judi, the prince of Yan and the fourth son of the emperor. The boy's name would later be changed to Zheng Ha. Some background on Zheng Ha. 
His family was Muslim, and his father had served with the Mongol army and had died in 1381, likely in the fighting with the Chinese. Zheng Hao's father's name was Ma Haji, meaning he may have gone to Mecca at some point in his life. Zheng Ha, or Ma Ha, had been born in 1371. He had an older brother and four sisters. As noted, he would be castrated and made into a eunuch in the early 1380s. This was not an uncommon thing during this period. The practice of making eunuchs out of boys and young men went back over a thousand years. Sometimes a person would be made into a eunuch as punishment, but in reality it was usually done to fill a need. And you may ask, why would anyone need a castrated man? In simple terms, the answer is that eunuchs were not viewed as threats by people of power. If you think about it, the idea is simple. You take a boy, kill or separate him from his family, and make him a eunuch, and he has no future. He cannot have children, he has no familial ties, his life is the duty that he has been assigned to do. A eunuch could serve as an advisor, or bureaucrat, or soldier, or bodyguard, or whatever, and they would be feel trusted by the family or dynasty that he served. And another important thing. A eunuch would not be a sexual threat to a king or an emperor or anyone in power. A eunuch would not sleep with the queen, or run off with the king's daughter, or produce illegitimate heirs or any other such complications. All of this meant that eunuchs could often rise to powerful positions, or even just positions that would let them influence powerful people. I mean, hey, even the barber of the king got to spend some time with the top dog, and that's more than most men could boast. In fact, in some places and times, eunuchs had such opportunities that self-castration was not unheard of. A young man might become a eunuch as a way to find a good position and provide for his family. Thus, eunuchs would, at times, come to wield a lot of influence. And because of this, there was often an inherent distrust of eunuchs by some people. They were seen not only as disfigured and abnormal, but as scheming and untrustworthy. The Chinese emperor distrusted eunuchs, even placing a sign up at the palace that said, quote, Eunuchs should not intervene in government affairs. Those that disobey will be beheaded. End quote. So, when the Chinese invaded Yunnan in 1381, they killed tens of thousands of men and women, and thousands of boys would become eunuchs. The boys would have their penis and testicles cut off. Many would die from infection, but those that survived would be sent to various places to act as servants or fill whatever positions were available. One of these boys was Zheng Ha. As noted, Zheng Ha would be given to the family of Zhu Di, who governed in Beiping, the name later changed to Beijing, on the northern frontier of the empire. The prince was 11 years older than Zheng Ha, but the two would basically grow up together. Zheng Ha would become well-educated, and he would become an indispensable advisor and friend to the prince. I want to note that the emperor, Zhu Yuanjiang, reportedly had 42 children, including 26 sons and 16 daughters. This can make for some messy situations when it comes for a new emperor. Zhu Yuanjiang and his successors would prove to be immensely paranoid and suspicious of anyone who would be a threat to their power. And having 40-plus siblings is a great way to sow distrust and suspicion within a family. Anyhow, Zheng Ha would spend much of his younger life in a military camp as Zhu Di battled the rebellious peoples on the northern frontier. Zheng Ha would fight beside the prince, learning the arts of war and the skills of leadership. By the 1390s, he would play a significant role in the campaigns against the Mongols. Unlike many eunuchs, who are often described as effeminate and weak, Zheng Ha was said to have been tall and imposing, with a deep, commanding voice. He was described as having glaring eyes and white teeth. So, this brings us to 1398. Zheng Ha was 27 years old, a trusted advisor to the Prince of Yan, one of the most important and powerful men in the empire. 
In that year, the emperor, Zhu Yuanzhang, would die at the age of 71. His eldest son had died seven years earlier, and Zhu Yuanzhang had passed the empire on to his grandson, 21-year-old Zhu Yunwen. It was said that the emperor had wanted to name Zhu Di, who he considered his most able of his many offspring, as his successor. But the emperor's Confucian advisors were against such a move, as it might cause jealousy and resentment with the other sons and lead to civil war. The new emperor, Zhu Yunwen, was described as a bookish young man. He would continue his father's policies of discouraging external influences, such as trade, and his Confucian advisors would hold sway at court. Also, he seems to have inherited his father's paranoia. Within a year of taking the throne, five of his most powerful uncles would be killed. The only one left who could threaten the young emperor was the Prince of Yan, Judi. Judi was an extremely ambitious, not to mention capable man. Many had felt that the emperor should have passed the rule on to him, and he knew that it was only a matter of time before his nephew, the new emperor, would come after him. Thus, it did not take long for war to break out between Judi and Zhu Yunwen. The resulting civil war would last several years, and in all honesty, just that event would make a fantastic podcast. But for our purposes, know that Judi would capture the throne in 1402, partly with the aid of the court eunuchs, whose power had been severely clipped over these past decades by the Confucian elements within the government. Judi did not trust the Confucian advisors who had fought against him, and he would give unprecedented power to the court eunuchs. This would be no inward-looking ruler. During the Civil War, Zheng Ha, still known as Ma Ha at that time, would distinguish himself in the defense of Beiping in 1399, and then in the capture of Nanjing in 1402. It was here that Zhu Di bestowed the new surname on his trusted eunuch, changing Ma Ha's name to Zheng Ha. It is said that the name was given to him during the defense of Beiping when he had successfully defended the city's reservoir against imperial troops and had his horse killed during the fighting. The reservoir was called Zheng Lun Ba. I probably mispronounced that name, but the Zheng in Zheng Lun Ba basically was given to Ma Ha, and he was now Zheng Ha. Got that? Okay, good. Zheng Ha it is going forward. As for Judi, it was customary for the emperor to take a new name, and going forward, he would henceforth be known as the Yongli Emperor, which means lasting joy. That brings us to 1403. The new emperor wanted to make a big splash in the world, thus he issued orders for the construction of an imperial treasure fleet, trading ships, warships, and support vessels, a grand armada like the world had never seen. The goal of the treasure fleet was to show the world the might of the new Yongli emperor. The fleet would restore and expand the power of the empire in the China Seas and the Indian Ocean. Plus, there was this whole issue of the depleted royal treasury. China had, after all, been at war for over half a century. The fleet would bring in money, always important for any government. Another reason for the fleet had to do with the recently deposed emperor, Zhu Yunwen. In the final days of his reign, Zhu Yunwen's body had never been recovered when he had been defeated in Nanjing in 1402. A badly burned body, supposedly Zhu Yunwen's, had been found, but no one was sure. Zhu Di feared that some foreign power might take in the man if he was still alive and back him in a play for the dragon throne. By sending the treasure fleet throughout the region, Judi was putting on full display of the might of his regime, securing the allegiances of the many kingdoms in the area, and discouraging anyone who had thoughts of challenging him. A quick side note, Zhu Yunwen would never be heard from again. If he had survived the war with Judi, he was content to stay in hiding for the rest of his life. But in all likelihood, he had died in 1402. Anyhow, 
That brings us to the next question. Who would oversee the construction and implementation and operation of this sparkly new treasure fleet? And for that, Judy would turn to his trusted companion, Zheng Ha. To make Zheng Ha the admiral of this new treasure fleet was unprecedented. Never before had a eunuch been entrusted with such a task, which would be a combination trade, diplomatic, and military mission. But as we said earlier, this was no inward-looking emperor. For this task, he turned to his best and most trusted man. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So, what exactly was this treasure fleet? The answer is that it is unlike anything the world had ever seen. At the Longjiang shipyards in Nanjing, which was on the Yangtze River, a couple of hundred miles from the ocean, construction of the treasure fleet began in 1404. The shipyard had seven 1,500-foot dry docks for building the ships. Chinese boat builders and craftsmen would build or refit hundreds of vessels to be part of or support the endeavor. It was a massive undertaking. Timber would be shipped from inland regions, and from all over the nation, thousands of carpenters and rope makers and sailmakers and shipwrights came to Longjiang. At its height, between twenty and 30,000 people lived and worked at the shipyards. Now, the size of these treasure ships was going to be very important to Judy because he wanted grandeur, opulence, and luxury. These ships would represent the very essence of his regime. Thus, the treasure ships would be massive, roughly 400 feet long and 160 feet wide. Some say the ships were even longer, up to 460 feet, but we don't know exactly. As a reference, Christopher Columbus's largest ship, Santa Maria, was 62 feet long. The treasure ships would have multiple anchors, as well as nine masts and twelve sails made of red silk cloth. And while there would be 24 bronze cannon on each ship, these were not fighting vessels. As noted, they were made for luxury. They had four decks with grand cabins for the guests, as well as windowed halls and balconies with railings. It is believed that each ship could carry at least 500 passengers, maybe even up to 1,000, and they would also carry enormous amounts of cargo. The ships were brightly painted and the prowls adorned with carved animal heads such as dragons and phoenixes and eagles, as well as dragon eyes. Now, how many of these treasure ships were built? To be honest, we don't really know for sure. Some believe only a handful of these vast treasure ships were actually built, but most sources put the number around 60 for this first voyage. I also want to add that some speculate that the size of these ships is exaggerated, that they were probably no more than 200 or 250 feet long. Some people believe that a 400-foot-long ship would have been too unwieldy. Or maybe the treasure ships described never really put to sea, instead just floated up and down the Yangtze River. Again, we really don't know for sure, but most experts seem to feel that the ships were massive for the time and that they did put to sea. So, as we talk about the treasure fleet, we know that the treasure ships were just a portion of the actual fleet and that there were other ships that were almost as impressive. There were eight-masted horse ships, over 300 feet long, designed to carry the many horses that would be brought on the journey. 
These horses were for the cavalry, plus the Chinese would give the horses, some of the best stock in the world, as gifts to the many dignitaries that they would encounter. Next, there would be supply and troop ships that were more than 200 feet long. Also, to protect the armada, there would be two kind of warships, larger ones called Fu Chun, as well as smaller ones designed for speed. These were 165 feet and 120 feet long, respectively. So intricate was the planning for this fleet that there would even be water tankers built. These ships carried enough fresh water to supply the fleet for as long as a month, although the fleet would try and replenish supplies every 10 days. To operate this massive fleet, Zheng Ha would have at his disposal more than 27,000 men. Here are some of the details. Among the soldiers, there were 93 regimental commanders, 104 battalion commanders, and 103 company commanders. To record everything that happened, there would be secretaries, bookkeepers, astrologers, and many other professionals. To operate the fleet, there would be thousands of specialists, such as caulkers and ironsmiths and pilots. There would be 180 medical officers to not only treat the fleet's crew, but to collect herbs and to learn about new practices and cures in the places that they went. I tell you all of this because I think it really lets you understand the enormity of the undertaking. This would be a floating city of more than 27,000 men. And in the planning and construction of this fleet, Zheng Han and his lieutenants had to set up a system for operating such a massive fleet. He and his officers would set up a system of bells, drums, and gongs and lanterns as a way to communicate. There would even be carrier pigeons that would go from ship to ship. It was an elaborate and intricate system. So, we call these treasure ships, but what were they specifically carrying that made them so valuable? Probably the two most valuable items would be silk, and most importantly, porcelain. No one made porcelain like the Chinese. A Ming vase? Well, that is from this era. It was delicate and detailed and innovative and beautiful, and surviving items can be worth millions. The porcelain carried by the treasure fleet would be highly valued wherever they went. So, in addition to porcelain and silk, the ships would have also carried cotton cloth, iron, hemp, salt, wine, tea, oils, stoneware, candles, and other fineries. It should be noted that this was a national effort to build and supply the treasure fleet, and it was not easy. This required enormous amounts of energy from all walks of society. Taxes went up, demands from the government went up, and resources were diverted to the fleet. Example, it was said that outside of Nanjing, 10,000 tongue trees were planted to supply the fleet with the tongue oil that was needed. All of this led to stress and discontent in some quarters, especially those in the Confucian bloc, who distrusted this outward turn. Still, things moved forward, and the treasure fleet would depart Nanjing on July 11, 1405. There were 317 brightly painted ships with 27,000 men, an extraordinary feat of organization and engineering. It's estimated that about 60 of the vessels were the great treasure ships. Zheng Ha was 35 years old when he sailed off with the first treasure fleet. A two-year voyage lay ahead. So trusted was he by the emperor, he was given blank scrolls stamped with the emperor's seal so that he could issue royal orders. This was an important signal, because remember, trust was not something the Chinese emperors had a lot of. It shows you how much faith the young Li emperor had in his old friend. The destination of the fleet was the city of Calicut on the western shore of India. It was an important port, a market for spices, rare woods, and other goods. Before his departure, Zheng Ha and his men made offers to Tian Fei, a spirit who wandered the seas, guiding sailors to safety. Admiral Zheng Ha would sail the fleet down the Chinese coast to the Min River, south of Fuzhou. Here the fleet would wait until December of 1405, or perhaps January of 1406, 
as they waited for the winds to take them west. Before they departed, they made offerings to the gods, including Buddha and Tianfei. Once the great fleet finally took to sea, it must have been something to behold. Over 300 ships, they would have stretched out for miles. Once at sea, the fleet would navigate using a water compass, and time would be measured by burning incense sticks. Also for this voyage, the fleet had compiled detailed maps of the waters, depicting landmarks and features, such as mountains and bridges and river mouths and villages. These charts would also detail the depth of the water and dangerous spots, such as hidden shoals and rocks and so forth. As for travel time, under good conditions, the treasure fleet could make about 200 miles in a day, but that would have been the maximum. So, from Fuzhou, the fleet would sail through the Formosa Strait, then southwest to Champa, which is modern-day southern Vietnam. Champa was a loose confederation of communities, many of them disreputable, no more than pirates. The Chinese wanted laka wood, a rare wood valued for making incense. They would also trade for rhinoceros horns and elephant ivory. The local rulers would be given gifts of blue and white porcelain, as well as silks from Zhangha, and in return, they would send back tribute to the Ming emperor. This last item cannot be understated. As this is the treasure fleet, we often think of the economic implications of the voyage. But here, the Ming emperor's representative is making a stop on what we can call the I'm really powerful and don't you forget about it tour. China's decades-old isolation had created chaos in much of Asia, and Zheng Ha was here to clean things up. So he stopped in Champa, impressed the locals, gave them some cool stuff, and got everyone to nod and give their allegiance to Judy and the Dragon Throne. In most cases, the Chinese were not interested in conquering. What they were interested in was bringing order. And Zheng Ha made it clear on this tour what was expected. The Chinese didn't really care who ruled or how they ruled, but they expected order and a respectful nod to the Ming Dynasty. So, next, the Chinese headed south to the islands of Java and Sumatra. Sumatra held a key geographic location as the Strait of Malacca, which runs between Sumatra and Malaysia, offered access to the Indian Ocean, which led to Ceylon and India and beyond. At this time, the region was a notorious haven for pirates. In fact, one of the main city-states on Sumatra, Palembang, was controlled by pirates, led by a man named Chen Zuyi. Palembang was a key player in the region's spice trade because of the city's position at the entrance of the Strait of Malacca. Zheng Ha would assess the situation in the area and bypass Palembang, at least for the time being. And then he would visit the cities of Delhi, Aceh, and Semadura on Sumatra. On Java, they visited the kingdom of Majapahit. The primary attraction of these items for the Chinese were spices. Nutmeg, cinnamon, cloves, and pepper, and so on. We should also note that the fleet wasn't always together during their voyage. It was common for Zheng Ha to dispatch smaller elements of the fleet to different locations, essentially allowing the fleet to cover more ground. Next, Zheng Ha would head through the Strait of Malacca and west to Ceylon, which is modern-day Sri Lanka, which was famed for its pearls and gemstones. Ceylon is a large island off the southeastern tip of India. As with Sri Lanka today, the island was rife with religious and ethnic conflicts. The fleet was met with hostility by the island's residents, so as with Palembang, Zheng Ha would bypass the island, but he would take careful note of the political and religious climate on the island. Next, the treasure fleet headed up the western coast of India, first to the ports of Cochin and Quillan, and then to the final destination, the city of Calicut. The fleet would arrive in Calicut in late 1406, and it had been a journey that had covered at least 5,000 miles. 
Calicut was viewed by the Chinese as sophisticated and advanced, a contrast to many of the places where they had been, where the inhabitants were seen as nothing more than barbarians. But Calicut was different. It was a cosmopolitan city with a rich culture and history. The Chinese saw a kindred people and respected them. So, the Chinese would be welcomed in Calicut, and trade would occur from December 1406 to April 1407. The Chinese would acquire rare woods, plus herbs and spices. Pepper, in particular, was highly valued. Also, there would be trade for gemstones, pearls, and coral. In the spring of 1407, the monsoon winds would arrive and take Zheng Ha and the Grand Armada back east. The treasure fleet had representatives from the cities of Calicut and Quillen, Samudura, and Delhi, as well as Malacca, which was on the Malay Peninsula. The fleet would head back through the Straits of Malacca, where Zheng Ha would address a lingering problem, the pirate Chen Zuyi, who, as noted, controlled the key port of Palembang. Here it was time to flex the muscles of the treasure fleet. The Chinese warships at this time were stout and preferred to ram an enemy ship. The pirates, on the other hand, had lighter and more maneuverable vessels and preferred speed. They liked to strike quickly and board enemy ships and fight hand-to-hand. This would prevent the Chinese from using their numerous fire weapons, such as the Fei Tian Pen Tong, a tube that would spray gunpowder on the enemy vessel and set fire the sails. There were also gunpowder buckets and gunpowder bricks, which were basically early bombs and grenades. Some of these were designed to damage an enemy ship, while others would explode and spray metal pellets, injuring or killing the enemy crew. Still other gunpowder weapons would spew noxious fumes, even poison, a way to confuse and sicken a ship's crew. Also, the Chinese were adept archers, using longbows and crossbows to rain down fire on an enemy. It was a formidable military force. Unfortunately, we don't have many details on the battle between Zheng Ha and the pirate king, Chen Zuyi. Operations against the pirates would go on for months, and we only know that Zheng Ha ultimately lured the pirates into an ambush, and the Chinese burned ten of the pirate warships and captured seven others. It is said that 5,000 pirates were killed in the battle. Zheng Ha captured Chen Zuyi and his lieutenants, then headed back to China with his captives, arriving October 2nd, 1407. Chen Yuzi and his officers would be executed. So, the first voyage of the treasure fleet had been a great success. The voyage had taken roughly two years, and Zhang Ya had successfully reached India and returned intact. He had carried the banner of the Ming Dynasty throughout the region. He had also scored a naval victory, ridding a key area of the pirates that had dogged the islands for too long. The goods brought back to China were an economic boon, and the many envoys who accompanied the fleet back to China were a sign of the empire's growing reach and reputation. As for Zheng Ha, I want to back up to the last leg of his journey home. At some point in the return trip to China, the fleet ran into a powerful storm in the South China Sea, an area where typhoons can materialize quickly and without warning. Legend says that the sailors in the fleet called on the celestial consort, Tian Fei, to protect them. And then suddenly a miraculous light appeared, likely St. Elmo's fire. The fleet rode out the storm, the crew confident of Tian Fei's protection. Zheng Ha took the phenomenon as a miracle, so when he returned to China, he asked that the goddess be given the title Protector of the Country and Defender of the People. The emperor agreed. But for Zheng Ha, that wasn't quite enough, and he undertook the restoration of the Tianfei Temple in Mai Zhao, the birthplace of the spirit. As for the treasure fleet, the emperor was so impressed by their accomplishments that he immediately ordered a second fleet to be organized. The second treasure fleet would depart in late 1407 or early 1408, again riding the season's westerly winds. This would be a smaller affair than the first, with only 48 treasure ships. 
As before, the fleet would first go to Champa, then to Siam, followed by Java and Malacca. The voyage to Java involved a diplomatic mission. During a civil war between the kingdoms of East and West Java, the king of West Java had killed 170 Chinese, part of a delegation to the kingdom of East Java. And the young Li emperor was not pleased. The Chinese wanted order and obedience. Chinese ambassadors threatened Java with invasion, pointing to a recent attack and annexation by the emperor of the troublesome region of Annam, which was northern Vietnam. The threats and the presence of the massive fleet were effective. The Chinese left with 60,000 ounces of gold and an apology. Order was restored to the region. By the way, for those counting, 60,000 ounces of gold translates into about $75 million. Not a bad chunk of change. Next were the cities of Samudera, Aru, and Lambri on Sumatra, followed by several cities in India, including Quillen, Cochin, and Calicut. Now there is a major controversy regarding the second treasure fleet, and that surrounds the presence of Zheng Ha. Some sources say that Zheng Ha was the commander of the fleet, while others say he did not participate in the voyage. Remember, after the completion of the first voyage, Zheng Ha had taken charge of rebuilding the temple to honor the goddess Tian Fei, something that was dear to his heart. A grand ceremony was held on January 21, 1409, dedicating the structure. Some have argued that there was no way Zheng Ha could have participated in the second voyage as the temple was dedicated while the fleet was still at sea. Still others reference him as specifically being part of the second voyage. In the end, we really don't know the answer. Perhaps he went with the fleet but returned early. Again, we don't know. Trying to guess who's right and wrong is really a fool's errand. Ultimately, whether Zheng Ha was part of the second voyage really isn't that critical, but there is no question that he will be the center of the story going forward. However, before we jump to the third treasure voyage, I want to take a moment to talk about Zheng Ha's religious nature. As noted earlier, his family was Muslim, and Zheng Ha never gave up his Muslim faith. But the man seems to have had an open worldly view of religion, showing respect as well as honoring many religions and cultures. In addition to his Muslim faith, he held great respect for Confucian principles, particularly honoring one's family and community. And as we have seen, he held a great reverence for Tian Fei, the goddess who protected the sailors. This all-encompassing worldview seems to have helped make Zheng Ha an effective ambassador. He appears to have understood and respected the religious views of people he encountered. He may have been imposing the will of the Ming Dynasty on other lands and peoples, but he left religion and other cultural forces on the sidelines. This attitude seems to have served him well. Okay, so enough of that. Let us move on. A third treasure fleet was commissioned by the emperor, and the fleet, under the command of Zheng Ha, would sail south in the fall of 1409. The fleet would have over 30,000 men involved. They would sail to the south of China and wait for the winds to take them west. Then they would depart in January of 1410. The third fleet was even larger than the first two. They traveled first to Champa, followed by neighboring Siam, Java, Malacca, Sumatra, and then to Ceylon. In Malacca, which was a fledgling port on the Malay Peninsula, Zheng Ha presented the ruler, a man named Parashwara, seals officially recognizing Malacca as a sovereign nation. But the recognition of Malacca angered Siam, which had previously claimed sovereignty over the port. For the Chinese, however, this kind of thing was a way to influence the region. Zheng Ha was content to play different rulers and kingdoms against one another. He never wanted any one place or one person to become too important or too powerful. It's sort of a divide-and-conquer strategy. Keep your rivals small enough and indebted to you, and they won't dare rebel against the big kid on the block. 
Anyhow, from Malacca, the Chinese would get spices, tin, gold, amber, and resins. And from Siam, the Chinese acquired mahogany, a hardwood that was highly valued. In Sumatra, in addition to the spices, they also traded for sulfur, frankincense, ginger, and herbs. Next on the list was Ceylon. Remember, Zheng Ha had bypassed the island twice now, as the natives wanted little to do with the Chinese. This time, however, he brought a tablet with three different languages inscribed on it, Chinese, Tamil, and Persian. The Chinese portion praised Buddha. The Tamil portion praised the Hindu god Tendavare Navanar, possibly a local form of Shiva. The Persian portion praised Allah and the saints of Islam. Zheng Ha then offered tribute to the local religious institutions, gold, silver, silk, perfumed oils, and other fineries. It all seemed like a good plan. He was approaching the island openly and with respect, and he preached the value of cooperating with the Chinese. But at this time, Ceylon was divided into three warring states. First, there was the largest ethnic native group on the island, the Sinhalese. They were mostly Buddhist. Next were the Tamils, who practiced Hinduism. The third group were Muslims, and they were the smallest of the three factions. Unfortunately for everyone, Ali Kasharwa, a Sinhalese warrior and hero, refused to accept the Chinese, seeing them as invaders. He felt that sending tribute to the Ming Emperor would be essentially surrendering to the Chinese, and he felt the Chinese were rude and presumptuous. So he rejected Zheng Ha's overtures and refused to allow the tablet to be raised on the island. It is important to understand that Ali Kasharwa was not the king of the Sinhalese, but there was little doubt that he wanted the gig. The actual king was a man named Vijaya Bahu. Anyhow, Ali Kashara would threaten the Chinese when they tried to land and drive them off after a short skirmish. Zheng Ha was content to move on at this point, but he would be back, and soon. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The treasure fleet continued on to India, again visiting Quillan, Cochin, and Calicut. After conducting trade for several months, they would then head back down the coast of India towards Ceylon. What happened next has a couple of different versions, so I will give you both. According to the Chinese, when the treasure fleet again approached Ceylon, Ali Kashara sent his son to Zheng Ha and demanded gold and silver and other valuables. Zheng Ha was not the kind of man to be dictated to, and he refused the demands. Ali Kashara was then said to have put together an army of 50,000 men, the intention to seize the treasure fleet from the Chinese. How exactly he would have done that, I really don't know, but know that 50,000 men marched on the fleet's location. At this point, Zheng Ha realized that with the Sinhalese army in the field, the capital of Kote was practically undefended. He would then land a force of about 2,000 men and personally lead them to Kote. This daring move would be a success, and the Chinese would capture Ali Kashara. The Sinhalese, once they realized what had happened, tried to surround the city, but Zheng Ha and his men slipped past them and to their ships, Ali Kashara their prisoner. To be honest, the sources are pretty confused about this situation, but it also appears that Zheng Ha captured the Sinhalese king, Vijaya Bahu. Exactly how and when, I can't really say, but in the end, Zheng Ha would take the two men back to China. Here, the emperor, Judi, would pardon Ali Kashara and send both him and the Sinhalese king, Vijaya Bahu, back to Ceylon. 
For the Chinese, this is hailed as one of the greatest military victories of the fleet. There was even a poem written about it that still exists. Of course, the Sinhalese tell the story a little bit differently. They say that Ali Kashara invited the Chinese to the capital, and the Chinese deceived him and took him and the king prisoner. Again, it's all kind of confusing, and in all honesty, it gets really wonky when you bring in the story of the Sacred Tooth of Buddha. Yes, there is a Sacred Tooth of Buddha, and it is part of our tale. According to legend, Buddha was cremated, and one of his teeth, his left canine, did not turn to ash in the fire. Of course, this became a major relic. The belief was that whoever had the relic was divinely ordained to rule the land. Thus, it was always in the possession of the ruler of Ceylon. According to some sources, the Chinese took the sacred tooth at this time. Once in China, the emperor ordered a diamond and jeweled case for the tooth. Others claim that obtaining the tooth was actually the sole purpose of Zheng Ha, and the Sinhalese fought him to prevent it from happening. Other theories are that the king of Ceylon, Vijaya Bahu, brought the tooth with him to China as a way to keep it from falling into the hands of the supporters of Alakashara, who wanted to take the throne. He would then show the tooth to the Chinese emperor as a way to prove he was the rightful ruler of the island. Again, it's all kind of crazy fun here. As I said, in the end, both Vijaya Bahu and Alakashara would return to Ceylon. The Sinhalese king likely agreed to friendly terms with the Chinese as a way to get his release. As a side note, Alakashara would ultimately seize the throne, but shortly thereafter, Vijaya Bahu's 16-year-old son would kill Alakashara and become king himself. Wow, that was a lot, and that's just one version of it all. In the end, the defeat of the Sinhalese would quell any sort of resistance from Ceylon, and the island would become a reliable trading partner for the duration of the treasure voyages. As a side note, I do want to mention that the tri-language tablet that Zheng Ha wanted to put up on the island would eventually be erected, and it survives to this day, which I think is pretty cool. So Admiral Zheng Ha and the 3rd Treasure Fleet returned to Nanjing on July 6, 1411. As you can see, there is a pattern in these voyages. You show the fleet, trade with the locals, wine and dye the leaders, but if that doesn't work, use the might of the Chinese military to establish order and respect. But military force was not necessarily a first reaction. Zheng Ha seems to have been given wide latitude on how to deal with troublesome entities. As the action on Ceylon indicated, it was years in the making, not just a knee-jerk reaction to someone insulting the Chinese. So, a note about the tribute that was being sent to China by the other nations the fleet visited. Envoys would come to China and bring gifts for the emperor. Unique items were the order of the day, as cities and nations tried to one-up each other. They would send an incredible array of items to Judy. There would be animals, such as tigers and leopards and birds. And there were jewels of all kinds. There were even exotic plants, trees and flowers, that were offered to the emperor. Parameshwara of Malacca presented the emperor with a pair of eyeglasses, the first the Chinese had ever seen. The emperor was reportedly delighted at the gift and showered the Malaccan ruler with unique gifts of his own. In fact, all of the envoys would receive many gifts from the emperor. The Chinese loved ceremony and ritual, and this was all part of it. They would prevent the envoys with silk robes, horses, saddles, jewels, and a hundred other items, and there would be banquets and feasts. These men and their families would stay for months, even years. Again, it all helped build relationships with China at the lead. The emperor was the benevolent and powerful and rich father figure who showered his loyal children with gifts and praise. The envoys would return home and proclaim and show off the might and the power of the dragon throne, exactly as the Chinese wanted. So, with the conclusion of the third treasure fleet in 1411, things were better economically in China. Here is an example. 
The emperor would use the profits of the treasure fleet to build a massive pagoda in Nanjing. It was over 250 feet high, with nine stories, and made of the finest white porcelain. It is said that over 100,000 workers were part of the construction. Ultimately, 20 buildings would be erected around the pagoda, as well as terraces and gardens. Records show that 2.5 million ounces of silver, profits from the treasure fleet, were used to build the pagoda and the surrounding complex, a task that would take 20 years to complete. The result of all this, the porcelain tower of Nanjing, is often called one of the seven wonders of the world. Sadly, it was destroyed in the Taiping Rebellion in 1856. I want to note that there will be seven total voyages of the treasure fleet, and going forward, I'm not going to repeat every place that the fleet visited each time. What we'll do is focus on the unique experiences of each voyage, knowing that each voyage sort of runs down the list of places to go. Champa, Malacca, Java, Sumatra, Ceylon, India, and so on. So, it's been seven years and three treasure voyages. Things are going good, and the young Li Emperor ordered another voyage, which would depart China in December of 1413 or January of 1414. As before, Zheng Ha would command the fleet. There would be 63 treasure ships and 28,500 men, another massive endeavor. However, this fourth fleet had a new goal, to go west, beyond India, to the land of the Muslims. Thus, in 1414, after visiting all the standard cities and nations, Zheng Ha would lead the armada to the port of Hormuz, which guarded access to the Persian Gulf. Because of its strategic location, Hormuz was one of the most important ports in the Middle East at this time. Hormuz offered the wealth of Persia in the Middle East to the Chinese. Here they would trade for pearls, gold, silver, copper, carpets, and salt. Also, Hormuz was the center of trading for precious stones, such as sapphires, rubies, and topazes. The fleet would also acquire exotic animals, such as lions and leopards and Arabian horses. The voyage to Hormuz was a critical moment because for the first time, China was bringing commerce to the Arab world. For centuries, it was the other way around, as the Arab traders plied the waters of the Indian Ocean, bringing goods to China. Now it was the Chinese who were the masters of the seas. It was all part of this concentrated effort by Zheng Ha and the Chinese Empire to continue to expand their influence and prestige. In addition to successfully reaching Ormuz, the 4th Treasure Fleet would distinguish itself in several other ways. First, they would sail south to the Maldives, a set of islands about 500 miles southwest of India. Here they would get ambergris, cowrie shells, and ropes made from coconut fibers. Second, another element of the fleet went to Bangladesh to trade and make inroads with the locals. And finally, on the return voyage to China, Zheng Ha would stop in northern Sumatra and deal with a local problem that concerned the Chinese. A man named Sikandar had seized the throne of Semudura, a city-state on the northern coast of the island. The problem was the Chinese had recognized a man named Zain al-Habidin as the city's ruler. And let's remember, the Ming emperor liked order and respect. Deposing a Chinese-backed entity was not the smartest move. Zheng Ha would ultimately attack Sikandar, and while not much is known about the campaign, we know that he would pursue the rebel king to the nearby city-state of, of Lampri, where he would capture Sikandar and his wife and child. King Zain al-Habidin was thus successfully restored to the throne, and all was in order, just as the Chinese liked it to be. Sikandar would be taken back to China, where he would be executed. Again, we see the flexing of the muscles by the Chinese. There are rules to follow, or risk the consequences. Another important item to mention about this fourth voyage was that while in Hormuz, Zheng Ha struck up relationships with representatives of lands even further west, as far as Africa, and he would take several emissaries back to China. 
This is going to set the stage for an even further expansion of the Treasure Fleet's reach. The 4th Fleet would return to Nanjing on August 12, 1415. On board, there would be envoys from 19 countries and territories, each bringing tribute to the Yongli Emperor. Exotic animals were always a great gift, as they thrilled the Emperor. There would be lions and leopards, camels, ostriches, zebras, antelopes, giraffes, and much more, all of which caused a great sensation at the Ming court. So, with things going smoothly and successfully, the Emperor ordered a fifth treasure fleet in 1416. Before the fleet sets out, I do want to mention one really important thing. The treasure voyages have been a great success for China, but there is a critical element to them, and that is that they have the full support and backing of the government. In many ways, the fleet was opening the door to a new opportunity, but those who benefited from direct trade were limited. It was the government that owned the ships that were doing the trading. It wasn't spurring a flood of entrepreneurs sailing from China to India and Arabia, although there were no doubt some men who did such a thing. Thus, the voyages were very reliant on the government for its success, and this makes the long-term continuation of the voyages questionable, as we will later come to understand. Anyhow, on to the fifth treasure voyage. The fleet would head west in April of 1417. This voyage would be even more ambitious than the others. The fleet would do the standard stops along the way, eventually reaching India and then the port of Ormuz. From there, it headed along the coast of Arabia, first arriving in Aden on the southern coast of Arabia at the entrance to the Red Sea. Aden was a rich city. The Chinese bartered for gems, pearls, coral, amber, and rose water. There would be animals, lions and zebras, leopards and ostriches, even a giraffe, given by the local sultan as a tribute to the young Li emperor. Next, the fleet went to East Africa, to the cities of Mogadishu and Brawa, both part of modern-day Somalia. They would then continue down the African coast to Malindi, which is part of modern-day Kenya. The locals in Africa were Swahili, and they desired Chinese goods. However, they were also very religious Muslims, and they tended to be wary of foreigners. A man named Fei Zin, who was part of the fleet, reported that the inhabitants of Mogadishu were, quote, troublesome, end quote. When they didn't welcome him, Zheng Ha reportedly used gunpowder explosives against the walled town. The locals wisely capitulated after that, and no real fighting occurred. As noted, the furthest south the fleet would go was Malindi in Kenya. To reach this point, the treasure fleet would have traveled at least 5,000 miles, further than Christopher Columbus's voyage from Spain to the New World. I do want to point out that the exact locations that the fleet traveled to are not always clear, especially as we move further west and not a lot is known about the voyages to Africa. We do know that they occurred, but beyond that, there's not a lot of information. Ultimately, Zheng Ha and the treasure fleet would return to China in 1419. It had been an extraordinary voyage, more than 10,000 miles, extending the reach of the Ming Dynasty far beyond what anyone could have imagined. But as so often happens, when things do seem to be going well, there are events in China that are going to disrupt the treasure fleet voyages. The emperor, Zhu Di, had been in power for about 15 years and had been fighting numerous wars with the Mongols in the north. And these wars were getting expensive. The money and resources and manpower involved in the fleet's operation and maintenance was becoming prohibitive. Those resources were needed elsewhere. Thus, in May of 1421, the emperor officially suspended the treasure fleet voyages. However, there were representatives from at least 16 different lands still in China when this order came down. So in November of 1421, Zheng Ha would be ordered on a sixth voyage, this one to return the many foreign dignitaries that were still in China to their homelands. Thus, the sixth treasure voyage was not as grand as the previous enterprises, 
There were still tens of thousands of men and hundreds of ships heading out into the Indian Ocean. There just wasn't the ambition and organization put into it as previous ventures. The Sixth Fleet would separate in Sumatra. One of Zheng Ha's deputies, a eunuch named Zhu Man, led the main portion of the fleet west. There they would break into smaller squadrons, heading to Ceylon, India, Arabia, and Africa, before returning home. As for Zheng Ha, it is believed that he returned to China to take part in the ceremony marking the completion of the Forbidden City, Beijing, the newly designated capital of the Chinese Empire. This was a massive project conducted by the emperor, the movement of the government from Nanjing to Beijing. Ultimately, all the elements of the fleet would return to China. But if there was hope for any new adventures, they would be quelled by the growing wars the empire was involved in. The Mongols were, of course, a constant problem. Also, in the south, the region of Annam, which is northern Vietnam, had been in rebellion for years. Combine the wars with the financial drain caused by the move of the government from Nanjing to Beijing, and the nation's economic outlook was strained. The treasure fleet was therefore put into mothballs. Now was just not the time to entertain such grandiose affairs. The fleet's men would remain in Nanjing and act as the city's garrison. Meanwhile, the emperor would continue his wars with the Mongols. Despite being past 60 years of age, Judi would personally lead his forces into the field between 1422 and 1424. However, the emperor was a changed man from all reports. He had always been paranoid and difficult, but by this time he had become unstable, reportedly cruel and temperamental. He was also a victim of various ailments over the years, and his health was not the best. In 1424, while in the field against the Mongols, he would become sick. Then, on October 12, 1424, Judi, the young Li emperor, would die. He was 64 years old. Admiral Zheng Ha was on a diplomatic mission to Palembang in Sumatra when he learned of the death of his old friend and lord. Zheng Ha himself was 53 years old. He had spent most of his life serving Judi and the Ming dynasty. In Judi, he had found a man of immense ambition and courage and achievements and intelligence. As we said earlier, Judi was no inward-looking emperor. He was a man with great vision, and Zheng Ha and the treasure fleet had been part of that vision. So, what was next for Zheng Ha and the treasure fleet? Well, that would reside in the hands of the next emperor, and that would be Zhu Gaojie, the eldest son of Zhu Di. While Zhu Di had been a rugged man of action, his son, the new emperor, was the opposite. Zhu Gaojie was described as fat and listless, but he was also said to be intelligent, well-read, and a first-rate statesman. The new emperor, who took the name Hong Shi for his reign, did not have his father's taste for foreign affairs. He saw no need for expensive military campaigns or risky trade missions. The new emperor felt it was crucial to lessen the taxes on the populace. On the first day he ascended to the throne, Zhu Gaojie issued a decree officially halting the treasure ships. They were an unhealthy distraction in the eyes of many. No new ships were to be built, and those that existed were not to sail anywhere or be repaired. This new regime would see a return of the Confucian elements, and the emperor would actively curb the power of the eunuchs, who had grown strong under the reign of Zhu Di. Despite the change in leadership in the Ming dynasty, Zheng Ha was recognized as a loyal and capable leader. As such, the new emperor would give him command of the defenses of Nanjing in February of 1425. Zheng Ha and the treasure fleet might have faded from history at this point, but fate would intervene when, a few months later, the Hongxi emperor would suddenly die. The date was May 29, 1425. He would be succeeded by his son, Zhu Jianxi the Xuandi Emperor, as he would be known. He was 26 years old and was described as a mix of his father and grandfather, 
He would not overburden the empire with wars and conflicts, but he would not retreat from the world either. Ultimately, he would be seen as a benevolent and wise ruler. In March of 1428, the Xuandi Emperor ordered Zheng Ha to oversee the rebuilding and repair of the Baowen Temple in Nanjing. This task would be completed in 1431. However, even before the temple had been finished, the Xuandi Emperor was planning greater things, a new voyage of the treasure fleet. In June of 1430, he ordered Zheng Ha to refit the fleet for a seventh voyage, a voyage that would be the last for the Great Armada. Preparing the treasure fleet would take longer than previous voyages. The fleet, after all, had not been at sea for a decade, so the ships had to be restored and refitted or built from scratch. The final treasure voyage would depart Nanjing on January 18, 1431, but it actually wouldn't put to sea for an entire year. Admiral Zheng Ha, the Muslim eunuch who had defied all odds to rise to his position, was 61 years old in 1432. The treasure fleet voyages usually took a full year or two to complete. Still, the loyal admiral would lead the fleet of more than 300 vessels and 27,000 men. The fleet would have its basic stops, Sumatra, Java, Malacca, Ceylon, and India. And along the way, it is believed that Zheng Ha stopped to negotiate a peace between Siam and Malacca. At Calicut in India, the fleet then broke into smaller squadrons, with one heading to Hormuz in the Arabian states, and another sailing to East Africa. Where Zheng Ha went, it is not known. Some believe that his health was failing by the time he reached Calicut, and thus he remained there, and sent the fleet west under the command of subordinates. Other sources believe he went with the continued to Arabia. No matter, the ships would conduct their business and return to Calicut, and Zheng Ha, who was sick, would be with them when he headed back to China. However, shortly after departing India, it is believed that Zheng Ha's health took a turn for the worst. It would not be long before the great admiral died. Zheng Ha would have been about 61 or 62 years old at the time of his death. According to Muslim tradition, Zheng Ha's body was washed and wrapped in a white cloth. He was then buried at sea, his head pointing to Mecca. There are some people who believe that Zheng Ha returned to China and died in 1435, but most scholars tend to agree that he died at sea. The last treasure fleet would return to China in July of 1433. So with the completion of the seventh voyage and the death of Zheng Ha, that wraps up much of our story. But there is a lot yet to discuss. I want to put this discussion into two buckets. The first will be the aftermath of the treasure fleet, why it never sailed again, the implications within China and the rest of the world, and so on. The second bucket is a retrospective of Zheng Ha and his voyages and their legacies. So let us head back to China. The seventh treasure voyage was complete. Zheng Ha had died, but there was a 30-year legacy of the treasure fleet for others to build upon, and China was the supreme naval power in the world. Plus, there happened to be a young, progressive, and wise emperor on the throne. The elements were all there for continued success. So, what happened? Well, as we have seen, the most dramatic thing that could happen did happen. In 1435, the emperor, Zhu Zhanji, would die suddenly. He was only 36 years old. Many historians consider his 10-year reign to be the height of the Ming dynasty. The throne would then fall to his 7-year-old son. Thus, the day-to-day -day affairs of the empire would be conducted by advisors, in particular a eunuch named Wang Chen. Ultimately, corruption and infighting would consume the empire, followed by a war with the Mongols. The Mongols would even capture the emperor in 1449 at the Battle of Tumu Fortress, a humiliating defeat for the Chinese. However, the Ming Dynasty would continue, and the emperor would eventually be returned to the throne. But things were going to change. 
The eunuch Wang Chen was killed in 1449, and there would be a swing in power in the imperial court as Confucian elements supplanted the eunuchs that had held sway for the past 50 years. As for the treasure fleet, for decades there were plans to launch another voyage, but circumstances always got in the way. Even as late as the 1470s, plans were put into place for another fleet, but nothing would ever come of it. Slowly, the great shipyards in Nanjing went silent, and the treasure ships rotted away. With the end of the treasure voyages, the tribute system gradually broke down. Trade and fealty from Java and Champa and Sumatra and India began to slow and ultimately cease. Envoys and officials stopped coming to China. When Zheng Ha died, there were 3,500 ships in the Ming Navy. Fifteen years later, it was half that. By the year 1500, as distrust of outsiders and outside ventures took firm hold in China, it was illegal to have more than two masts on a ship. By 1525, all ocean-going vessels were ordered destroyed by the government. In less than a hundred years, the Chinese had gone from the greatest naval power in the world to having no navy to speak of. It was a shocking turn of events. With regard to the treasure fleet, there was one final attempt in 1477 to revive the voyages. Certain elements within the empire made noise of another fleet. However, China's minister of war was against this, and he would order all the writings and logs of Zheng Ha to be confiscated and then destroyed. Like many, he considered Zheng Ha's writings to be fairy tales, and a distraction that was not needed. It was a tragic loss, since no copy of the great admiral's writings have thus survived. In the end, we see China withdraw from the international scene just as Europe was getting started. Portugal and Spain would be the first European powers to set their sights on Asia, and in 1498, Vasco da Gama would arrive in Calicut. Within decades, the lands that China had so heavily influenced, India, the Spice Islands, Sumatra, Java, and so many others, were falling under the sway of forces from the West. Ironically, Westerns came to the Far East and saw themselves as superior, when only a half a century earlier, they would have seen ships and fleets that dwarfed their own. In fact, Europeans would find remnants of the great treasure fleets throughout the Indian Ocean. It is said that when Vasco da Gama rounded the southern tip of Africa and came to the lands of East Africa, the natives scoffed at the bells and beads he offered them as gifts. Those were trinkets, they said, and the Europeans were told by the natives that their ships were mere toys, and then the elders of the villages told the stories of the ghosts from the great ships that had brought them silk and finely crafted porcelain and other fineries decades before. Throughout the islands of the Far East, the Europeans would find signs of the treasure ships and stories told by the eldest of the natives, stories of the mighty painted ships with red silk sails. But for the Europeans, that was all they were, stories. There was no great Chinese navy to speak of. It was a stunning turnaround, and it signaled centuries of growing Western influence in the Far East. We can only speculate what might have happened if Europeans had arrived in the Far East around 1500 and found a different China a China with an emperor who had vision and strength. The meeting of West and East may have led to a very different world than what we live in today. But I will leave that to alternative history buffs to debate that future. Now I want to revisit Zheng Ha, our soldier, diplomat, and sailor. After his death, it was said that a braid of his hair and his shoes were brought back to Nanjing and buried outside the city. He was by this time a very wealthy man, and he left all of his possessions to an adopted nephew. Sadly, as we noted, the writings of Zheng Ha were destroyed less than 50 years after his death, robbing the world of what likely would have been some amazing records. We do have some first-hand accounts of the men who traveled with Zheng Ha in the fleet, but those writings are very limited. As for Zheng Ha, he has not been forgotten. In many places, he is like a folk hero, or even a deity. 
To this day, throughout Asia, you'll find temples dedicated to him, as well as statues of the man. He was especially important to the thousands of Chinese who worked and traded and settled on the islands of the Far East. These people built temples to honor their homeland, and Zheng Ha was venerated by many. In Indonesia, he is respected and honored. Remember, Zheng Ha was a Muslim. Thus, he is recognized by the Indonesians for his role in bringing Islam to the region. In China itself, he has been remembered and his feats recognized for centuries. The Treasure Fleet would be a story behind a 1597 novel, Romance of the Three-Jeweled Eunuch. Today in China, July 11th, the day the first Treasure Fleet sets sail, is honored as Maritime Day. Also, Zheng Ha's tomb in Nanjing, which is empty, so it's kind of weird he was given a tomb, is now a museum honoring the great admiral. There have been many stories written about him, and even a TV miniseries was created by the Chinese to honor the man. Now, we have to remember that the sources from this area are very obscure, so I have no doubt you can find things to contradict much of what I said in this podcast. That said, I've tried to give you the basic story and speculate as needed, or if I thought something was really cool. With that, I do want to talk about Zheng Ha, the Explorer. The Treasure Fleet is, honestly, not that much of a tale of exploration, but that's okay. Zheng Ha led his fleet into the unknown on many occasions, and for that he deserves an enormous amount of credit. I want to talk a little bit about this. Remember, the fleet was not just a single unit as they traveled. It frequently broke up into smaller squadrons, and where they all would go, we don't really know. The fleet, without question, ventured down the east coast of Africa, further than any Chinese expedition had ever dared to go. There is evidence that elements of the fleet even reached as far south as Madagascar. I want to add that we talked about a lot of places like Sumatra, Java, and Malacca, but the treasure fleet is known to have visited, at some point, some of the other islands in the region, including Borneo, the Philippines, and even Timor, which is not far from Australia. And that leads to speculation that the fleet, or a portion of it, reached as far as Australia. Ming-era relics have been found there, but how they got there is only a guess. But it would not have been out of the question that some part of the fleet would have reached the Australian coast. Again, just fun to speculate. There's also some evidence that a part of the fleet went into the Red Sea and perhaps reached the port of Jeddah, not far from Mecca. Some romantics like to imagine Zheng Ha himself reaching the holy city, but again, that's probably not true. That some of his men did reach Jeddah is not out of the question, but again, it's only speculation. Next, there is one other theory that I do want to put the kibosh on. There's a book titled 1421, The Year China Discovered America. It purports to show that the Chinese reached the western coast of North America in 1421. Honestly, I have not read the book, but it really sounds like a lot of BS. Smart, informed people have read and critiqued the book, and for the most part, they tear the theory apart. I only bring it up due to its popularity. Ultimately, it would have been cool if Zhang Ha had sailed the treasure fleet to America, but that's another alternative history book for someone else to write. So, that is it, the tale of Zheng Ha and the Chinese treasure fleet of the 15th century. I hope you enjoyed it. As I said earlier, it was not an easy script to put together. Because there's a lack of solid first-hand sources, our story is heavy on dates and events and places, and lacking at times on the human moments, but I think we got something pretty cool in the end. Next, I do want to apologize for the long interval between episodes. Getting the narrative of our story in a form I was comfortable with just took some time. I just felt it was better to get it right than to rush it. Combine that with some real-world distractions, and this all just took a bit of time. That all said, I want to thank the many people who have sent me notes and comments over the past few months about the podcast. I appreciate all the ideas and kind words more than you can imagine. 
Plus, people have left Explorers some nice reviews on iTunes, something I would love for you to do if you get the opportunity. Your support and recognition will help increase the profile of the podcast. So, to all of you, thank you very much. I appreciate the encouragement and the nice things you have said. That is it for today, but I'm going to leave you with a quote from the star of today's podcast, Jung Ha. We don't have many direct quotes from the man, but there is one that I think captures something rather amazing. The epic and bold nature of what he did, but more importantly, the awe-inspiring feeling of what it is to explore, to go into the unknown. This quote comes from a tablet that Zheng Ha erected in Fujian province in 1432. It says, quote, We have traversed more than 100,000 li, a li is about a third of a mile or half a kilometer, of immense water and spaces, and have beheld in the ocean huge waves like mountains rising sky high. We have set eyes on barbarian regions far away hidden in the blue transparency of light vapors, while our sails loftily unfurled like clouds, day and night continued their course with starry speed, breasting the savage waves as if they were treading a public thoroughfare. End quote. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.